This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Well, hello there. How are you this Monday afternoon? It is so good to have you along. Can you believe it's been another year's gone by? I don't know, it seems to come around faster and faster each year. But the world's mining industry is getting together in Kalgoorlie, Boulder for the annual Diggers and Dealers Mining Forum. Tara DeLangraft is there for the forum. We'll cross to her after the news headlines at half past 12 today uh, just to see what the big talking points are. There's about, well, just under 3,000 delegates from across the nation at the forum this year. So we'll catch up with the keynote address and some of the big issues, keeping those delegates chatting around the water cooler this afternoon. Also today, catching up with the Trade Minister, Don Farrell. We'll do that shortly and get his thoughts on the big news that came through during the Country Hour on Friday that China is lifting those tariffs on Australian barley, which had been set at 80% for the last three years. Those tariffs gone as of Saturday. So we'll get the Trade Minister's thoughts on that shortly. Six past 12, President of WA Farmers, John Hassel, says a meeting with the Premier and the Aboriginal Affairs Minister this morning has not eased concerns about the state's Aboriginal cultural heritage laws. One key assurance he did get from the government, however, was that the state government will pay for any required cultural heritage surveys on farms. After months of harsh criticism, the state government appears set to scrap its controversial act, but there's no official word from the government at this stage. In fact, a cabinet meeting is underway right now. John Hassel, what were you told during your meeting with the Premier and Minister Booty this morning? We were told that they haven't actually made a decision yet whether they're going to uh, repeal the uh, new act or, or not. So what were you told? Well, <laughs> that they wanted to work with us and that they'd taken notice of what Trevor had written in the Farm Weekly last week, uh, which was a letter that we'd sent to Tony Booty, uh, suggesting ways that we could make the legislation work to protect Aboriginal cultural heritage so that we could uh, continue farming without the fear of a $10 million fine, etc. Now, there were really three key motions that were carried at the Catanning meeting. So about 500 farmers were at the meeting to discuss this particular act. Now, the main motion being that the government amend the Act to recognise that freehold rights override heritage rights. So what commitment did you get from the government on that particular motion? Well, we got an explanation that that heritage is something that's going to be applicable in the same manner that uh, that you know environment is going to be on your farm. So uh, he didn't uh, give any any uh, commitment to claw back on that particular one. So, what assurances have you been given? I mean, do you feel that your worries are now over after having a meeting with the premier? And the Aboriginal Affairs Minister? Not at all. In fact, I told them that our rally's going ahead, or our delegation's going ahead tomorrow because, you know, until the legislation's changed, it's not changed and we feel it needs to be changed. But we do feel that we're being heard and they said they want to work with us, which I think is a really positive step. So any indication of what changes might be made? So we won't be having to pay, uh, you know, fees to larks for... 
uh, for doing the surveys on our farms, so that'll be covered by the government. I think that was one pretty clear one. Uh, I'm not sure that they went down the path of agreeing to our request for compensation for uh, loss of amenity. So we sent a list of eight things, and they said they're keen to work with us on all of them anyway. Which but, was... but no real assurances, except for that one about the government taking on those costs. Oh, pretty much, yeah. Pretty much, you know, they, they're still working on how they, they do it. They're not, you know, they've not committed to pulling the, the new act and they've not committed to going back to the old act. They haven't said how they're going to do it. They're just going to, you know, work on trying to work with the key points that we sent through. So you've really got nothing more than you had yesterday. Well, that's why we're going ahead with the delegation because we need to, we need to keep the pressure on and I think that's pretty important. And we made that point too. We said we're keeping the pressure on because until things are changed, it's not changed. Why were you called in this morning then? Well, you know, you really don't know till you get there, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, I think the, the fact that we've always tried to work with the government to get the changes to make the legislation work, I think was, was a good indication that, you know, we're not just saying throw the act out like a lot of people are. We're saying let's make it work. And I think, you know, that's a good start. So you think there can be amendments made to the current legislation, the new legislation that was introduced just five weeks ago, you think there can be some tinkering around the edges there to make it work for the farm sector in WA? Well, we think some fairly major changes to either the new legislation or the old legislation. And I think if you enact the old legislation, we'll be in just about as much trouble if they don't make changes to that. So it's got to be one or the other. Mm-hmm. So what changes? What are the key changes you need made? Well, we, we don't want our freehold rights to be taken away. We, do want to, we don't want to be having to pay for the preservation of Australian cultural heritage. Well, you seem to have won on that point. Yeah, I think we're pretty good on that one. Um, we want to work, you know, with, with the community to make it happen. We, you know, we need to be able to... All of our previously disturbed land needs to be treated as though it's there forever and we don't have to go back and do... If we, if we do a survey, we don't want to have to go back and do another survey and another survey. The survey should stick forever. But, you know, the, the reality is, is if we don't do these things now, we will actually lose the knowledge holders and we won't get all of these things and the, and, the, and the heritage won't be preserved. And I think we've got to work with the government on that. Have you been given a government assurance that farmers can build dams, sheds, fences without surveys? Uh, not, they didn't go as far as that, but the points were made this morning to try and tell them that we need to be able to do those things without hindrance. And the fines and the jail time, will they still apply? I, like, I guess if people do um, deliberate damage of cultural heritage, I'm sure that they would still apply. But if the government's going to pay for the cost of someone to come and do a survey and you don't take notice of what they found, then I guess the, you know, people still need to take responsibility for their actions. Mm. But if they come and find it and we work with it and try and make sure that we don't damage cultural heritage, everybody should win. So not, no real promises made at this, this morning's meeting, John. I'm wondering, not really, I mean, do you feel... You know, out, coming out of the meeting, do you feel more confident well, they that, that they the farm sector is going to get what they're looking for here? I, I feel confident, but it's it's not over till the fat lady sings. Inappropriate as that might be, it's just not over, and that's why we're going ahead with our delegation, and we're going to keep fighting until the changes are made. All right. The other key farm lobby group, the Pastoralists and Graziers Association, was not invited to the meeting this morning, and the president of the PGA, Tony Seabrook, says this is really the government trying to divide the farm lobby. This is the government trying to wedge our industry. And and I'm pretty annoyed about that because all parties should have been involved here and uh, Mr Bertie didn't ask us. Why do you think you weren't asked? I think the line we've taken here about scrapping the Act and starting again isn't one that the government is comfortable with. They've made an absolute dog's breakfast out of this 
and our view is let's start again. Tony Seabrook from the Pastoralists and Graziers Association. John Hassel, is the government trying to drive a wedge between the industry, between the two groups? I was very careful to make sure that I made the point to the Premier and Tony Booty that we also need to make sure that pastoralists can carry on their business as well because this is not just about farmers, this is about all people trying to make a living out of the land. Were you invited in because you're a soft touch? Well, I could well have been, Belinda, but I don't think I am. <laughs> so is, is the government, is it working to, if it's trying to drive a wedge, is it working? Because you were working on the same page with the Pastoralists and Graziers Association. Is that now over? Well, I hope not. Uh, you know, Tony, as he said, wasn't happy about not being invited. Probably wasn't happy about me going in by myself. But, you know, when you get an invitation from the Premier and the, and the Minister, I think you've, you can't say no because, you know, they'll just spit it back in our faces. And I don't think that's something we could afford to do. Did you speak to Tony Seabrook prior to the meeting? I have spoken to Tony. And how, did, how was that conversation? He wasn't very happy with me. He didn't want you to go? He did not. Well, look, that's not quite true. He, he did want to go and he wanted to go together, but after our meeting on Tuesday. But that wasn't on offer. Could you have insisted that the PGA come along? Uh, look, I didn't try because uh, after I, I said I was going, Tony was not happy. Now, the PGA says um, they weren't invited because it wants to scrap the Act and start all over again and the government isn't comfortable with that. What do you feel? Do you think the Act needs to be scrapped or not? I think we can make it work, Belinda, but uh, you know, as I said, we've got those eight points that we think that need to happen. And again, as I said, unless the changes are made, they're not made. And so you know, we, we'll keep working on it. And... But now that you're in the tent with the government being invited to this meeting this morning, does that mean you're prepared to compromise on what's best for the farm sector? Not at all. So we, we actually met with the PGA and the WA Grains Group in West Perth a couple of weeks ago, which formulated the motions for the Catanning meeting. So PGA were actually happy with the motions that we were putting up. and the, the Did they sign off on it? Well, well, there were minutes taken and they didn't uh, demur on it, but then they kind of withdrew their support a bit later on. So are you working together on this or not? Well, right at the moment, it doesn't feel like it, which I'm pretty disappointed about. Can you have a conversation with Tony Seabrook, get back on track, or this is Well, no, I hope so, because, look, we've got bigger fish to fry as well in terms of the live trade, and we committed to going to Canberra together to, uh, to, to lobby politicians to get the live trade back on track. In fact, with Roger Cook this morning, I said to him, I want him to go to his federal conference and move a motion that, uh, that the live trade decision be reversed. And he said, I'll take that on board. So I was pretty happy with that too. So he's not going to take it, but he's taking that on board. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's never a particularly good assurance, but, you know, he, he did listen. Where to from here? What's the next step? Well, they rally tomorrow, delegation, and keep working on trying to get the changes made. And, you know, I think we, you know, the ministers pretty well understands that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people very unhappy about the way it is and that it needs to be improved. And, you know, I call it the Australian Cultural Heritage Act rather than Aboriginal because I don't like us being divided on the basis of race. We need to preserve our Australian cultural heritage and the Minister's on board with our stance on that and I hope that he takes it on board to the point of listening to what we've got to say. Did the Premier indicate at all when an announcement, an official announcement, will be made by government about what, what happens from here? No, but I did encourage him to come to the rally tomorrow and make an announcement.
Okay, we'll keep an eye on it. John, good to have you in the studio. Thanks, Belinda. John Hassel, he is president of Lobby Group WA Farmers. 16 past 12 here on the country out. What do you make of that? Uh, where we're at at this point, as I said earlier, there's no official word from the government at this point, but it does appear that there are going to be some changes. We're not sure of the format of that, but certainly some changes to the state's Aboriginal cultural heritage laws. The key points that John Hassel got out of that meeting this morning with the Premier and the Aboriginal Affairs Minister, Tony Booty, being that the government, it looks like the state government is going to be paying for any required cultural heritage surveys on farms. It was originally going to be the farmer, but it now looks like the state government is prepared to take that on. And also the cultural heritage laws will be very similar to the environmental considerations when it comes to doing anything on your property. What do you make of where we're at? Right now, zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Text through and have your say this afternoon. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Seventeen past twelve. Cato Muir is a Nullia man from the Western Deserts and also chair of the National Native Title Council. He campaigned against the legislation from the outset. He says the updated Act failed to give Aboriginal people an effective capacity to protect cultural heritage sites. Basically, it was an advancement on the last legislation and, you know, Western Australia has a sorry history of heritage reforms. The first Act came out of a dispute over cultural heritage at Weibo. Charles Court amended the Act in 1980 after the Nukumbar dispute. Carmen Lawrence excised Marindu from the, the Aboriginal Heritage Act and now this is the Jugun reform. So every government for the last 50 years has been trying to strike a, well, not so much strike a balance because effectively all of those amendments were to make destruction of Aboriginal sites easier and that's uh, our primary concern. So, so your argument is you wanted it to go further? Well, what we wanted was Section 18s is a legal permit to destroy a site. We didn't want Section 18s. We wanted the ability to have a access to an appeal. So non-Aboriginal parties had an access of appeal to ministerial decisions, uh, whereas Aboriginal people were locked out of that process. So if the state government goes back to the old law, the original 1972 cultural heritage legislation, Section 18 would stay. Um, There is talk that the government may then give Aboriginal people the right to appeal because you don't have that right at the moment. Would that satisfy you? Uh, What they're talking about, though, is uh, appealing through the courts. Anyone can take legal action, but I think really what we need to do is get rid of Section 18s altogether and shift the focus not on development approvals but on cultural heritage protection. That's what this is all about. What's the way forward then? Well, the discussion at the federal level is around having a national standard for cultural heritage protection, and that's what we really need to be doing is focusing on elevating a standard for protection of cultural heritage sites. It's not about a tiered system of Uh, land area size or anything like that. It's about cultural heritage needs to be tenure blind. You go to Europe, anywhere in Europe, cultural heritage exists regardless of the tenure. And the same here in, in Western Australia, we have Heritage Council legislation where people find their, their houses are nominated for the, its heritage status. So it's not necessarily about tenure. And I think that's the, the issue that has caused the uproar here is that the government in its designing of the regulations has conflated cultural heritage protection with tenure discussion as well as within the development approvals regime. 
And that's what we really need, is to get away from development approvals and look at protecting, celebrating, and enjoying the cultural heritage, the rich cultural heritage that we have in the state, uh, as opposed to um, getting caught up. Because every time these amendments occur in the reform of the Aboriginal Heritage Act has always been a response to a development issue, not a celebration of cultural heritage. Wasn't it also about the fact that that a lot of the state hadn't actually been surveyed yet and the government was asking landowners to pay for those surveys. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, and that, that uh, in the 1972 version, the state actually did the surveying of cultural heritage sites. Now, uh, in the uh, space of uh, mining development all, and all of these ongoing activities today, I'd assume that would not be possible. Um, so th- this is a thing that we need to understand is that our farmers in Western Australia are actually custodians for multiple cultural sites on their lands. And I think the expectation of them doing heritage surveys similar to a mining company, that's really the failing in this whole debate. So there might, might be a way in which the government actually commits to a process of cultural mapping of cultural heritage sites in cooperation with the farming community, with the Aboriginal community, and with a view to actually protecting cultural heritage sites as opposed to um, setting everyone up in these oppositional sort of positions. Kato Muir is a Nullia man from the Western Deserts. He's also chair of the National Native Title Council, speaking to Nadia Mitsopoulos. 22 past 12 on the text going through a couple of these. A few coming through. Thank you for those. 0448 This from Michael. Both the WA Grains Group and the PGA were not invited to today's meeting. The WA Grains Group has been against this act from the beginning. As a farmer, the new act is totally unworkable. The vagueness and grey areas are terrible for private property owners. Lines to the effect, what's not culturally significant today might be tomorrow... Things like song lines, complete waterways, etc., are vague and unjust. The LOCS, which are the Local Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Services Assessment, will come from people who will benefit from establishing new sites. It's bad law and needs a complete revamp, says Michael. This from Richard. Very disappointing the state government is still saying it's keen to work with farmers when clearly it's not. I am very disappointed the WA Farmers Organisation has broken ranks and weakened our position. Uh, This too from Michael. Maybe the PGA wasn't invited to the meeting because what's the point of talking to someone who does not want to listen? The text is 0448922604. Text through and have your say. 23 past 12. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. As you heard during Friday's Country Hour, China announced it was lifting tariffs on Australian barley, which had been set at 80% for the last three years. Now, that took effect over the weekend, so no more tariffs. Australia's Trade Minister Don Farrell also learned of the decision on Friday afternoon when the Chinese government posted the announcement online. This is obviously very good news for um, Australian barley producers, but it's also good news for Chinese uh, consumers. Uh, They very much uh, enjoy Australian uh, grains and and in particular uh, barley, and this gives them another opportunity to to purchase um, Australian uh, uh, fine produce. 
So can we expect the Prime Minister to visit China before Christmas? Look, the Prime Minister's made it clear that he would like to uh, accept the invitation of the Chinese government to visit, uh, and I'd be hopeful that uh, he can find it in his uh, schedule between now and the end of the year to make that visit to China. How much of this decision do you think has to do with the war in Ukraine and Russia's blockade of food exports, particularly uh, grain? Has that made it sort of impossible for China to maintain these tariff regimes? Uh, look, there will be a range of considerations which um, the, uh, the Chinese government will have taken into consideration in uh, removing these tariffs. But uh, I'd like to uh, think that it's been the, the persistent and uh, patient approach of the Albanese government to stabilising our relationship with China and an emphasis on removing all of these uh, trade impediments uh, it started with the Prime Minister's uh, discussion with the, uh, the Chinese President last year, followed up with uh, a meeting between uh, the Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, and her counterpart. Uh, and then I've now had uh, three meetings uh, with, uh, with uh, my counterpart. All of those meetings have contributed to us stabilising that relationship and uh, having, having an opportunity to resolve our outstanding issues. There's still more work to be done. There's still other products that we uh, need to, to get back into the Chinese market, like wine, like lobster, like some sections of the, uh, the, the, the meat industry. So the job's not finished yet, and uh, we're going to continue to, uh, to work on resolving all of those outstanding uh, issues and uh, stabilise our relationship. I mean, barley trade is usually worth around $900 million a year, I believe. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. How, That's about it, yeah. How much has this hurt this last three years? How much has it cost the Australian economy? Oh, look, look, I, I don't have the exact figures uh, on that at the moment. Uh, Andy, of course... Barley was one of the products that uh, successfully found other markets, albeit not at the same price that they were getting uh, from the, uh, the Chinese market. But look, at its peak, um, uh, our sales were just under $1 billion a year. I'd like to see that trade uh, um, resume uh, into China. But uh, one of the other policies of the uh, Albanese uh, Labor government is to try and diversify our trading uh, relationship. Uh, you've seen that we've got a new free trade agreement with India. Uh, we've just uh, started one with the United Kingdom. Uh, we're talking to the Europeans about a new free, free trade agreement. So um, we just don't want to get back into the Chinese market. Uh, we want to uh, spread the risk, if you like, uh, and get our products, our, our very fine uh, Australian barley and other produce, uh, into a range of markets. Trade Minister Don Farrell with Andy Park. 27 past 12. Barry Large is Chair of Grain Producers Australia and Farms at Myling, about 200 kilometres north of Perth. He's very happy China has removed that 80% tariff on Australian-grown barley, but he agrees with Don Farrell. He doesn't want to revert back to being so reliant on one country. Oh, look, you've always got to be excited when we're allowed back into a market, that a market that's been very good to, to growers and particularly Western Australian growers over time. So it's good to have it behind us. I think it rose for a bigger barley crop next year and a few of those people that were a bit bullish and put in a bit more this year barley uh, might see a uplift in the price. 
if it's now likely that China's a bit more itchy for our barley, what will that mean for the alternative markets that we've established in the interim? Well, it's it's a very good question that you raise. And, and I would suggest, I would say to growers that it's very important for us to service all of the markets. And I, I've been quant- trying to quantify in my own self where I would sit in in delivering to different markets. And, and I would be pretty keen to um, share it around because there's no doubt competition in the marketplace means better prices, but it also stops this reliance on one market. And, and I clearly, we would demonstrated that how vulnerable as growers we were having been so reliant on China. So I think it's very important that we take a step back, take a breath and go, you know, we have established new markets and the markets have been good to us and let's try and share it around. So, yeah, not putting all the eggs in one basket then? No, definitely not. I think that's a lesson learned. Too much reliance on one market put a lot of stress and what are we going to do? So we want to keep everybody at the table. I think we grow enough that we can share it around and and the, the one thing is that quality of our barley is very good. So um, let's make sure that we can keep these markets open and, and transparent. Chair of Green Producers Australia, Barry Large with Sophie Johnson. 29 past 12 in response to the conversation earlier in the hour about the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act and the fact that John Hassell, president of lobby group WA Farmers, was invited into a meeting with the Premier and the Aboriginal Affairs Minister, Tony Booty, this morning. Uh, the PGA and uh, WA Grains Group not invited to that meeting in response to that conversation. This from Murray in South Albini. When the PGA's Tony Seabrook learns that good communication means listening as much as talking, he may get invited to important government meetings. Thank you, John Hassel, for opening up the lines that hopefully lead to fair and just rewards for all parties. This from Gary. Just when we're on the cusp of a united stand against this terrible act, the WA Farmers Organisation decides to deviate. John Hassel could have insisted that Tony Seabrook be invited to the meeting. The wedge is in, says Gary. Uh, This too from Tim. John Hassel has just bent over. Tell the Premier no. Tony Seabrook for Prime Minister. And this too from John Snook. John Hassel has snatched defeat from the jaws of victory and sold out every farmer in Western Australia for his personal elevation. That text is 0448922604. On the country hour, it's 29 to 1, and Tabarak al in the studio with the news headlines. In the headlines, lawyers for billionaire miner Gina Reinhart have sought to demolish claims by a former business partner of her father, Lang Hancock, that they are owed a cut in her lucrative iron ore empire. Mrs Reinhart is fighting off attempts by three separate parties to eat into her royalties from the Hope Downs mines and tenements in the Pilbara region. A lawyer for Hancock Prospecting told the court there were fatal flaws in the claims by DFD Rhodes, the company of the late businessman Don Rhodes. WA's Environmental Protection Authority could scrutinise Alcoa for the first time amid concerns the company's operations could affect Perth's drinking water supplies. The EPA today deemed partially valid a referral of Alcoa's mining management plan from environmental lobby group, the WA Forest Alliance. The ruling means the miners' operations could come under public scrutiny. And there are renewed warnings about the risks of mushroom foraging after three people died from suspected mushroom poisoning in regional Victoria. Police are investigating the circumstances of the deaths with one other person in a critical condition. More news at 1. 
Tabarak, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate that. 28 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Still to come, it's off to Muche just before the news at 1, going through the yarding and the prices at the cattle sale today. And today's the first day of the annual Diggers and Dealers Mining Forum held in Kalgoorlie, Boulder, with almost 3,000 delegates this year. Our own digger, Tara DeLangraft, is there. And so straight after... Uh, a chat to the Bureau of Meteorology, you will find out what sorts of things were being talked about in this morning's proceedings. It does sound like there's a lot of interest in anything associated with batteries and electric vehicles. TDL along shortly with all the details for you. 27 to 1, right now off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Caroline Crow, a couple of, um, well, spring-like days over the weekend, continuing again today for much of the Southwest Land Division. How's it looking? Yeah, Belle, that's right. It was a beautiful weekend. Uh, not a lot of cloud about and its temperatures have definitely been above average uh, for this time of the year and they are continuing today as well, above average for a good part of the Southwest Land Division, uh, getting even up to six to eight degrees above average in those far north, inland northeastern and uh, parts uh, and eastern parts of the Southwest Land Division. Um, Muckambudan's looking at uh, 28 degrees today and uh, even those uh, warmer conditions continu- continuing tomorrow through the far northeast and a couple of degrees cooler uh, but still um, definitely lovely temperatures at the moment. Um, coming in uh, Weather-wise, though, uh, there is some cloud about uh, through um, most parts of the southwest land division. I've got some uh, north northeast northwesterly winds at the moment um, and there's a, a cold front approaching from the southwest which is going to move through the southwest land division tomorrow so looking at showers uh, and thunderstorms developing from uh, the southwest corner uh, tomorrow morning and extending throughout the southwest uh, land division during the day uh, most of the shower the thunderstorms will be south of Lance then across to um, Contanning and through around to the uh, Esperance area there with the passage of the cold front and ahead of the cold front uh, could see some pretty uh, gusty winds as well in those showers and thunderstorms in the southwest, Lanceland through to around Hopetown, southwest of that line with um, gusts uh, getting up to uh, around 90 kilometres per hour. Uh, it's just a slight risk though, so um, it's just that chance. And in the southwest corner from a rainfall perspective, most of the um, falls will be along the uh, west coast south of Perth and through around to Albany. Uh, could see some heavy falls, uh, 30 millimetres or so in the southwest corner, um, grading to 10 to 20 mils uh, southwest of Perth to Albany. And then as we go further north and east as the cold front moves through um, grading t- from Geraldton to around Southern Cross area and across to Israelite Bay, uh, getting one to five mils and then sort of just less than a mil sort of in those far northeastern and uh, northern parts of the southwest land division. The uh, cold front uh, moves east pretty quickly and we get a ridge of high pressure pu- pushing through quite rapidly on Wednesday and the showers are going to contract to the south coast by Wednesday morning and generally are clear during the day and they're just going to be light falls and then... And we'll also have a bit of a cooler air mass. So these these lovely temperatures that we've got at the moment, we will uh, gradually get cooler from the southwest tomorrow and into Wednesday where temperatures will drop uh, quite a bit. So for Wednesday, we're looking at sort of around that uh, mid-teens for a good part of the southern half of the southwest land division and getting up to 18 to 20 degrees as you go further north around Dalwallanew and into um, sort of Morrowa, Donga and north of that area there, getting to 24 degrees near uh, Kalbarri. 
So a bit of a change in the temperature over the coming days uh, with that southerly wind behind uh, the cold front. Coming into Thursday and Friday, uh, we've got a bit of a, a spring-like pattern again where we get we see a trough over western parts um, and we're going to it's um, indications that we're going to see a cloud band form over the southwest land division uh, Thursday and into Friday, gradually contracting sort of east over the weekend. There is some uncertainty on uh, where those uh, rainfall or the, the heavier falls uh, may be um, at this point in time, um, but it looks as though... Uh, parts of the southwest land division could see one to ten millimetres um, uh, coming into Thursday, Friday uh, before contracting east on uh, Saturday. And then Caroline, what does all that mean for northern and eastern parts of the state? It's a bit quieter uh, through northern and eastern parts of the state. It's been pretty windy up north through the Kimberley and parts of the Pilbara uh, and that's continuing today and tomorrow morning and then we'll gradually see those winds ease. It's also been above average from temperature perspective as well. So central parts have seen uh, 6 to 10 degrees above average and getting towards the Pilbara and Kimberley um, 2 to 4 degrees above average. Uh, a little bit of cooler air getting into the far northeast parts of the Kimberley though and that's fairly uh, similar for the next couple of days as well. There is a bit of cloud about at the moment through the Gascoyne and Goldfields, uh, patchy cloud, but no uh, significant weather and uh, coming out of that. Um, coming into Tuesday as that cold front moves through, could just get the isolated shower reaching the far southwest parts of the Gascoyne into the southwestern parts of the Goldfields and also western parts of the Euclid. But as I mentioned, for the southwest land division, it does contract and clear pretty quickly. Um, so uh, the Gascoyne Goldfields uh, will be uh, clear on Wednesday. And then the cloud band uh, that's looking to form over the southwest land division on Thursday and Friday uh, could also impact uh, southwestern parts of the Gascoyne uh, into the gold fields and the Eucla as well. But anywhere sort of further north and northeast of that, we've generally got those clear and uh, sunnier conditions. And then this afternoon, Caroline, any warnings? Uh, currently there's uh, just the marine coastal wind warnings uh, for the, the North Kimberley uh, and the Pilbara coasts, um, although that was gradually easing because uh, most of those strong winds uh, have been in the morning. And then uh, there's uh, coastal waters warnings for the southwest um, between uh, Perth and all the way around to the Esperance coast with the approach of the cold front. Caroline, thank you so much. 22 to 1 here on the Country Hour. So I look back over the weekend now. So from 9 o'clock Friday until 9 o'clock today, there was hardly any rain anywhere in Western Australia. In the Pilbara, Mount Stewart, 11 mils, but that was over four days. And then in the interior, Carnegie, 7, and Jukuyula, 10. So that is 300 kilometres east of Laverton, so about 1,000 kilometres east, northeast of Perth. And no rain was recorded over the weekend anywhere at all in the whole of the Southwest Land Division forecast districts. 21 to 1 here on the Country Hour. As I mentioned earlier, off to Mouche just before the news at 1 to go through the yarding and the prices at the cattle sale today. First, though, it is that time of year again when, well, this year, 2,700 delegates from across the nation and the world's mining industry gather in Kalgoorlie Boulder for the annual Diggers and Dealers Mining Forum. As usual, you cannot keep her away. Tara DeLangraft has made her way to the gold fields for the event and joins us this lunchtime. Tara, how are things looking? 
oh look though it's warm i can't believe i'm actually saying that about a diggers and dealers usually the one thing you can guarantee is you've got to scrape ice off your windscreen but um this is my 16th diggers i missed a couple while on maternity leave over the past few years but it feels comfortingly familiar um this 32nd annual forum as you mentioned um and really similar numbers to last year so everybody's back um, after a little bit of a, a lull over, uh, of course, the, the COVID years, and um, they're, they're ready to get digging and dealing. Tara, this year's keynote speaker was economist and broadcaster Dr Linda Yu, and we know in years gone by some of the keynote speakers have been rather profound, others rather sort of beige. What did Dr Lou bring? Yeah, so, Bill, um Look, to be honest, it was a bit of an anticlimax for me. Um, to be honest, in years past, they've always had an in-person keynote speaker, uh, but COVID and technology means that uh, this year um, was presented over Skype or, or Zoom. Unfortunately, it did drop out a few times, but Dr Yu was, I suppose, your typical economist, um, touched a little bit on everything. Short term, she expects that uh, interest rates will hold steady, peaking at their current sort of 5% US levels. And she suggests that inflation could also have peaked as well. Uh, she did suggest dusting off some of those uh, models that we saw in 2008 post the GFC to see what we, we may need to do in the coming months. But she really focused on trends, uh, including... I suppose what's been dubbed the great reset. So that's, as we're seeing in most workplaces, flexibility, working from home, uh, and especially in the mining industry, that green transition, ESG as they call it. And then on longer term, especially with China moving to renewables, really looking at where Australian miners are placed to take advantage of that market uh, that they're really already currently feeding. So she touched on supply chains, especially Chinese battery production, and making things resilient. So I asked Dr Yu how Aussie miners can best take advantage of China's green transition, given that the industry is already supplying so many of the raw materials it needs. You know, as with all things, processing is key. If you look at other countries that are commodity exporters, Australia has a couple of advantages. One is that it's industrialized, so it has greater capacity to process. That's where the value added comes from. So you don't just end up with the downside of the commodity um, exporter. And, um, and then thinking, I think, quite hard about the best ways in which to also diversify against digital politics. You know, people sometimes think of um, supply chain resilience as protectionism. If you ask a business person, um, they would say you should always have a plan B, a plan C, <laughs> a plan D. And putting all your eggs in one country's basket doesn't make sense. You would never do that as a business, so why would you do that as a country? Economist and broadcaster Dr Linda Yu, who is the keynote speaker at Diggers and Dealers, the mining forum uh, starting today in Kalgoorlie, Boulder, the 32nd time it's been on. So, and, and sort of offering the same advice that you heard from grain grower Barry Large earlier in the hour about, you know, not keeping all your eggs in one basket. And the same advice you're going to hear shortly from China expert Philip Kicklerkin. Tara, what's the mood like this year? Because the industry has been relatively buoyant this last 12 months, despite those sort of global conditions. 
Yeah, look, it is really interesting. As you mentioned, Belle, globally things are rather turbulent, but here in Kalgoorlie, as almost always is the case on day one of Diggers, uh, it is buoyant, smiles are aplenty, and there's lots of enthusiasm and plenty of things to smile about locally because the industry has had a cracking 12 months, especially here in WA. Uh, in fact, the latest data from Deloitte, which compiles an index of WA listed companies, has shown that the value of those companies has grown over 21% year on year to a whopping $363 billion. Uh, I caught up with Deloitte's Nikki Ivory and she says it's really due to investors taking a more long-term view of investments. I think the battery thematic, if I want to sort of put it into a nutshell, is going to continue to um, dominate. This isn't going away. This is a, not a short-term um, trend. This is a long-term trend. You know, the net zero target set for 2050, the sort of interim target set for 2030, these are what are driving this whole thematic. So companies in the critical mineral space that are producing the commodities that are going to be needed to transform the world, the energy transition, but it's broader than that, uh, these are the companies that are, are going to be the beneficiaries. That's Deloitte's Nikki Ivory there, Bell, who uh, also announced a list of the biggest movers and shakers over the past 12 months. Uh, they included Lion Town, Pilbara Mittle, uh, Minerals rather, and DeGray. Uh, that's at the big end of town. Uh, WA1 Resources, Meteoric Resources and Azure Minerals on the smaller scale. And when Deloitte say moving and shaking, they really mean it. Uh, WA1 Resources up a phenomenal 5,200% year on year for their share price, Bell. So uh, it looks like there's some big things on the horizon for the state's mining future. Well, it sure does, Tara, and I hope they're sharing some of that money around. <laughs> well, actually, Belle, I, um, I headed out to a fundraiser last night, which started just a couple of years ago on a patio on the edge of town here in Kalgoorlie, Boulder, and it's now grown to about a 300-strong crowd, I think there was last night, and they've got deep pockets. They raised money for the kids' charity Full Circle Therapies here in the Goldfields, and the RFDS, and according to the WA Chief Executive Officer of the RFDS, the donations are about more than just being good corporate citizens. I would say it's definitely genuine, and everybody has a story. Somebody told me a figure that one in three people in WA has somehow had their life touched by raw flying doctors, and it's obvious when you speak to the people here that they know someone who's been moved by us, they have a family member, so it's, it's truly heartwarming, the genuine support that's here tonight. So Goldfields is very important to us. We fly 10,000 patients a year across WA. Four of those every day come from here, come from the Goldfields. And over a year, we fly more than 500 people out of the mine sites as well because people are living and working on those mine sites. So it's both the Goldfields people who know how important it is to have rural flying doctors here for them, and it's also the mining industry because they have people living and working in rural and remote WA. Royal Flying Doctor Service, WA Chief Executive Officer Judith Barker. And Tara Landcraft, is there anything in particular that you're looking forward to at Diggers this year? As a mum of a 13-month-old, oh, maybe some sleep. <laughs> um, look, not many people come to Diggers for sleep, but me, maybe. Uh, look, seriously, though, um, I've seen some phenomenal figures when it comes to apprenticeships and traineeships in the mining industry, so I'm looking forward to 
finding out a little bit more about that. Uh, also being in Kalgoorlie, there's so much focus the last couple of years on renewable minerals. They seem to be the, the new black, but it is Kalgoorlie Boulder, so um, I'm looking forward to getting back to basics and seeing what the future holds for the gold industry. Uh, and also want to see how far the industry has to go to meet some of those carbon targets that are looming in, um, in 2050 and then those interim measures in 2030, because that's really only sort of seven years away. Um, I also spoke to a number of people about the possible ACH outcomes this afternoon as well. So, um, you know, just the usual people I catch up with and news that's happening around the industry and the people I see once a year. But, um, yeah, maybe also some sleep as well. All right. Well, you get a good night's sleep, Tara. Thank you so much for that. And obviously we're going to hear a lot more from Tara DeLandcraft over the next few days from the Diggers and Dealers Mining Forum. It is 12 minutes to one here on the Country Hour and Australia should wean itself off dependence of China. And that opinion not just coming from those growing barley or the keynote address at this year's Diggers and Dealers, it's also coming from a WA-based China business expert. As you heard earlier, trade relationships between Australia and China seem to be improving. But as Michelle Stanley reports, negotiating with China is always risky. Barley growers, winemakers and rock lobster fishers know full well the impact of when China has a change of heart. They're just three industries which in the past three years China has decided to ban or impose extreme tariffs on Australian imports. Trade in those industries effectively stopped costing Australian businesses billions of dollars in lost markets. But iron ore, it's going as strong as ever. Because we have been such a a good, long-standing and reliable supplier of critical raw materials to China, I'm confident that this will continue. Philip Kirkleckner is a China expert. He sits on the Australia-China Business Council and has a long history in the mining industry, working in the past as an executive for Rio Tinto, and FMG. He's been keeping a close eye on Australia-China relations and says even though he doesn't expect China to reduce its reliance on Australian iron ore, it would be prudent for Australia to diversify its trading partners. For a lot of commodities, you cannot beat Australia. You cannot beat Australia's low sovereign risk, uh, regardless it's Labor or Liberal, uh, I think governments have always made sure that there's regulatory stability. But there are some risks, of course. Even though Australia is a much better place to invest for China than, for example, Africa is, it still feels that the diplomatic situation may cause them to do something that is not in their own interest. And it's not only because of those political sensitivities, shall we call them, but China's economy isn't actually the powerhouse you might think it is. Philip Kirkleckner says it has a few risks of its own, with slowing growth and political uncertainty within the country itself. It's in a slowdown and its recovery from the end of the zero COVID policy has not been as expected. It's just, uh, at the moment, really a crisis in confidence in China. When you talk about confidence, you cannot just switch that on. You, You have to, it takes time to put in place the relevant policies. The other issue related to this is the political risk. And one of the reasons why the economy hasn't been rebounding as much is that the 
Chinese government has had a crackdown on private enterprise last year. It was last year was focused on the on the tech sector, and uh, this year it's focused on a financial sector, and that has also affected the ability of Chinese entrepreneurs to invest because if government can crack down on them at a moment's notice, you know that also destroys confidence. So I think. That that is the political risk that is probably something that is not widely recognized by by businesses around the world. But if China isn't the focus, who is? Philip Kirklechner says Europe, the US, Japan, and South Korea should be key targets for Australia, and also India. There are not many alternatives to China because China is by far the largest steel producer. But India is the next big thing. In the last four to five years, India has emerged as the second largest steel producer in the world, and with population growth in India continuing and declining in China, it will not be long till India will actually be not the same like China. That'll be that'll take a long time, but it's going to increase its steel production dramatically and and will turn into a major importer of iron ore for Australia. But it's not just who. Philip Kirklechner says it's also about what. Reducing the dependence on iron ore for the Australian economy would also be wise. Michelle Stanley with that report, catching up with China expert Philip Kirk-Lechner. Seven minutes to one. Heading to the state's Kimberley region now, where there might be some croaky voices and some dusty heads today after a big weekend of camp drafting at Kununurra. It was the Jewel of the North event. As Alice Marshall discovered, it showcases the best horse riders across Australia's top end with a Kimberley fine diamond up for grabs as the main prize. Righto, ladies, gentlemen, and children, and non-lady ladies and gentlemen, people, get ready. Jewel is about to begin. Welcome to what's quickly becoming the most esteemed camp draft event in the top end. Yeah, we've been following it pretty closely. Yeah, we love it. We love, love watching what's happening, love seeing who's riding, and yeah, it's been great. I would compare it to the state of origin. No, oh, the ashes, I would say. Yeah. Or the Dally M medal. It's pretty much the Dally M medal. No, the ashes. Of the camp draft industry. Yeah. The cricket in Sydney. Yeah, look, you win that, you become a really big deal. You're sort of a celebrity up here, aren't you? That was Will and Ned, a couple of Carlton Hill ringers in the grandstand of today's final. And this is Hamish Lamond. He's a finalist and he's standing in the camp now. So the Jewel of the North is run in conjunction with um, other camp drafts through the Kimberley and Northern Territory and then your accumulative three best scores go to a total and then the top 15 competitors from there then go into a final and the person with the highest accumulative score from all four rounds wins. So the final still considers your your points from your other top three? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's correct. And where are you sitting on the board at the moment? I'm actually not too sure. I haven't been paying too much attention. What kind of score are you looking for here to think that you'll be in with a shot? I'd have to be up there with a 90 or something pretty competitive. I think I'm about 10 points behind at the moment. Yeah. So it really is anyone's anyone's game at the moment. Yeah, yeah, but I'd sort of be banking on a few people to um, not run scores and me to get a bit lucky. And this is Sam Mobbs. He's also getting ready to compete in the final today. 
yeah, it's a pretty big deal for the like for the camp drafting up here, I suppose. Eh? It's um, it's unique to the yeah to the north, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. Can you talk me through what the prize is? Oh, geez, I'm not really familiar. I know it involves a ring and and a yeah. How nervous are you at the thought of? Doing that final, there'll be a fair few people watching. No, nah, yeah, it'll be the pressure. Pressure will be on. Yeah, uh, they'll be pretty nervous. Yeah. And in the camp now, number eight, Sam Bob's on Crusade, coming to two forty-seven. He don't waste no time. He goes to work, drives up front, middle of the camp, power work, calls for the gate, two forty-seven coming into the final. And after all that, despite their best efforts, the prize didn't go to either of those two blokes. It went to a twenty-year-old girl from Warwick in southern Queensland. And her big grey horse, Perla. Uh, my name's Emily Banks. I work at Mulu Station as a station hand. I've been there for a year now. Have you ever won anything like this before? Uh, no, not like this. This win means quite a lot to me. Um, my grey horse, he's been knocking at the door, so it feels really good to have won it on him. Um, yeah, it's pretty special. How long have you been competing on him? I've had him for about six years now. And he just keeps putting good run after good run together for me. And, yeah, he's deserved this win, so it's been it's really good. What's his name? His name's Perla. I think that was said in the commentary box was you were having an absolute Perla of a run. What did it feel like? It feels good. He always feels good. He always gives his best. Yeah, I'm pretty lucky to have him. And it's a pretty special one to win. Can you just talk me through the significance of, of this event? across the whole sort of top end? Um, yeah, so this is my first year that I've been in this event, but, yeah, it feels pretty good. You know, you've got to at least get to three drafts and put a score on the board, so it's a bit of consistency. Yeah, you've seen a lot of good riders, so... At only 20 years old, it's a pretty huge achievement for Emily. Yes, I'd like to thank um, all the people behind the scenes, the committee, the people that have stood by me, I guess, helped me out, picked my cows, just... Little things like that, it all helps out a lot. Um, so, yeah, thanks to everyone that has been involved. Well done to 20-year-old Emily Banks from Warwick in Queensland speaking to Alice Marshall after taking home the Jewel of the North. Two minutes to one. A total of 657 cattle were penned for sale at the Mouchet Market today. That is down 105 on last week's numbers. Terry Birkin, hello. How was it today? Hi, Melinda. Numbers remain low again today with an even mix of local and pastoral cattle. Quality was again very good in all categories, with most parcel cattle from areas with good rainfall showing excellent finish. Buyer interest was reasonable, with a couple of live exporters competing on younger parcel steers and heifers with better cover, and prices remain consistent with recent weeks, with the exception of slaughter bulls easing 10 cents a kilo. Local wind steers sold to 364 cents, while the heifers returned 162 to 228 cents a kilo. Partial winner and yearling steers made 210 to 276 cents, while the heifers range from 100 to 230 cents a kilo, depending on fat cover. Local yearling steers from 250 cents to 270 cents, while local heifers selling from 220 to 260 cents a kilogram. Grown steers range from 186 to 268 cents, while grown heifers returned 190 to 232 cents a kilo. Store cows were making 100 cents to 188 cents, Medium cows selling to 206 cents and prime cows realised 220 cents a kilogram. Plain condition young bulls started at 150 cents to return to the paddocks and up to 280 cents for live shippers, while mature heavy bulls were back 10 cents for the best making 222 cents a kilo. 
This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service at Newshay. Thank you so much, Terry. In response to China taking off those tariffs on Australian barley, this from Helen. So the bullies win once again. As a primary producer, it's good to know that China needs our barley. They've decided to remove the tariff. However, without any penalty being levied on China because the Albanese government put a halt on taking them to the World Trade Organisation. China also knows it can do the same thing again whenever it wants to. We are at the mercy of China's whim. Not a good place to be in, says Helen. Time for the news. It is one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.